Amen. Thanks, Cindy, for that. We are a family. We looked at that last week, and we see that here again in this passage. Uh, my name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at ResCom, and it's good to be together this morning on this Eastertide Sunday. Uh, if you don't know, in the church calendar, whoa, in the church calendar, uh, we celebrate, or in this time of Eastertide, as we remember Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And for these seven weeks that we're in, we're looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians, namely what a resurrection church looks like. In light of Jesus who resurrected from the grave, what implications does that have on the church? What does it look like? And that's what we've been looking at. Last week, we looked at this new community, that it was formed by their identity and their mission, that they transformed the world or their community. And as we look at today, we're going to look at what a gospel community is in light of a resurrection church. And so as we do that, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for your faithfulness. Thank you, as Cindy reminded us, that we are a family. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as fathers and mothers, Lord, you unite us uh, despite of different ethnicities, different social statuses, uh, different grades, life stages. Lord, you have gathered us together because of Jesus' life, his love, his death, his resurrection. So, Lord, I pray this morning, even as we read and heard from Adrian, from your word alone, that we would receive this not as the words of men, but, Lord, that we would receive it as your word alone. Do that good work in our hearts this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems as though lately, especially in the last few years, that we've seen pastors and church leaders fall into moral uh, collapse. And it could be for different reasons. It could be because of the abuse of power, abuse of money, but also abuse of sexu sexual abuse and sexual harassment. The, late, the latest that has really rocked the Christian world was Ravi Zacharias. He was a world-renowned evangelist. He was a world-renowned apologist. And after his death, what came out was just absolutely disgusting. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of that for those that maybe have experienced a lot of trauma in the past. But I can list Name after name after name of so many pastors and leaders in the Christian faith that have fallen from grace because of their moral, their moral failures. I even remember the first time I experienced that from my mentor. And I remember my friend who after, after finding out what happened to our pastor told me, just sharing from his broken heart, said, I will never trust another pastor ever again. We are dear friends to this day, but he is no longer walking with Jesus. In the midst of this, this cultural moment where we see so much moral failure amongst Christians in the church, it's no different in the early church as well. I remember just meeting this brother this past Friday. 
and just sharing. And the reason he wanted to meet with me was because he was so disillusioned about what the church's witness has been over these past few years. And he assured me, I still love Jesus, but I don't know what to do when the church doesn't look like and reflect what we believe. Now why I share this is because this church in Thessalonica is experiencing some of this. But not for just reasons. Remember, Paul and Timothy and Silas had to flee in the middle of the night because all of these people were wanting to persecute and attack Paul. So in the middle of the night, they flee, and in their void, these Jewish leaders come into the church. And as they come into the church, they begin to malign and attack Paul, his name, his character. And as they do, they say, he's just like these sophists, these orders, that would, these Greek Roman orders that would come in to Thessalonica. And in, in, in really nice clothes, with lots of money, they would wax eloquent words and rhetoric to be able to impress and as a form of entertainment, bring large crowds together and take their money and sometimes find young boys and young girls to spend time with. And then they would just leave the city. And these Jewish leaders that filled the void of Paul leaving said, Paul was just like those sophists, these orators who looked good, took all your money, and basically left you for dead. And as Paul hears this, when Timothy comes back to report on how the church is doing, Paul writes this portion of his letter in defense of his ministry. To basically say this is not true. And we, re we read that. If you look at the first six verses, what does he say? He says, for you yourselves know. And he says that four times in this portion of the letter. He says, you know, you know. Meaning it's not he said, she said. Basically, you were there. Thessalonians, you were there when I was there. And what does he go on to say? He says, I suffered in verse 2 and have been shamefully treated in Philippi. When before he came to Thessalonica, he was in Philippi and he was ran out, but he was beaten. He, was, he suffered. And he's saying, there's no way I came to wax eloquent words to take your money. But rather, I suffered. I am above reproach. And not actually gaining any sort of reputation, I was losing my reputation. In the midst of much conflict, he finishes in verse 2. And he says, it wasn't to please man. I never came with words of flattery in verse 5 or pretext for greed. Nor did we seek glory from people. You know, you were there. I suffered. I didn't take your money. It was not out of greed. And in this situation, what's so amazing, and here's the point of this entire sermon this morning. As Paul defends his ministry, Paul actually invites the Thessalonian church as well as us to emulate a pattern of what true gospel ministry and what true gospel community looks like in the church. That we're not just a new community, but we are a gospel-centered community. And it's through these ways that we'll look at that the Christianity continues to grow in the face of persecution. And that's the point. And how do we see that? What does it look like to emulate a pattern of true gospel community? Well, first we'll look at the importance of God's word. And secondly, the importance of our character. So first, let's look at the importance of God's word. 
Six times in verses 1 through 16, you see Paul use this word or phrase, gospel of God or word of God or gospel. Six times. Look at verse 2. He says, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Verse 4, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So they're speaking the gospel. In verse 8, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. So they shared the gospel of God. And then in verse 9, what do we hear? What do we read here? While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So here Paul is defending his ministry saying, I am declaring, I'm sharing, I'm proclaiming, I'm speaking the gospel of God, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the Bible when we use the word of God. He's saying the gospel, the true story of history of how Jesus broke into our world, his life, his death, his resurrection. This good news I am declaring to you. And what do we see in verse 13? We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, they received the word of God as they heard it. Not as words of men, but as the word of God. Not only did they hear it, but they actually received it and took it to bear in their own lives. This is so important for us to hear. Think about all the ways in which we are inundated every day with other gospels. Other good news of our culture. There are so many things today in our culture that vie for our attention and our hearts. That try to shape and try to, try to constantly form us in our minds and in our hearts. This week as I reflected on this, I, just, I was being a little more careful in what I was hearing and listening to. As I met with some of you. But even in our home. Our girls this week asked us. What is the thigh gap? I mean, every day, I know we can laugh, but that broke my heart. Because they are being inundated by YouTube and media about what body image should look like in our culture. For us who are in college or in high school, as students, what forms you and shapes you as you think about college applications, about the grades you get, about what clubs and teams you're a part of. Especially if you think about some of our Wash U students, thinking about med school or other programs and master's programs. What does it mean to have an identity and what does success and meaning in life look like? We are completely inundated all the time, Monday through Saturday, that shapes us and forms us of what the good news of our culture is. I mean, I'll be honest with you this morning. When I drive our kids to school, I don't want to drive my 2004 Honda Accord that's beat up. I choose to take the nice SUV to school because I don't want to look like that loser who drives a beat up sedan in the Ledoux School District. And my kids call me out on it all the time. They're like, you're flexing, Dad. You're flexing by driving that thing because as soon as you drop us off, you go back home and then you drive the Honda Accord to work. But I am being inundated in what success looks like. What my identity is formed by. And on this one hour as we 
participate online as we are here in this room together, we have a countercultural story of the good news that reimagines, that rehearses the true story of history. Not only do we need to hear it being proclaimed and spoken, we need to receive it like the Thessalonian church. Dr. Michael Goheen, who's an author, scholar in missiology especially, when I spent time with him during my doctor of ministry class, he shared about how over the last 10 years he goes to churches. And as he teaches them on missiology, he'll ask them this question, what are people pursuing? These are Christians he's asking. What are people pursuing? Meaning, what's the meaning of life? And over the last 10 years, it's the same exact answer. Week after week for the last 10 years. And it always boils down to material prosperity, consumerism, goods. And that is our culture. And that culture is so strong. It's this Western movement that sweeps us along that tells us this is a true story. But here, Paul as he spent time with the Thessalonians, says it is the word of God that we need to embrace and receive so that we have a countercultural story that reshapes and reimagines and rehearses the story that is true so that we know where our identity is. That we don't belong to ourselves, even though the culture says that. We are not individualistic people, but we're reminded of the Heidelberg Catechism, right? What does the Heidelberg Catechism say? I'm trying to find it. I lost my notes here. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's part of the gospel. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not our own. But like we are a family. We belong not only to our Savior, but to one another. Like I said last week, we have commitments and obligations to one another. And that's why it can't just be Sunday mornings as important and valuable as that is. What does it look like to be in God's word daily, regularly? As Jenny Lynn always says, it's not too late to join the daily Bible reading plan. Come on and join us this week. Read a chapter here or there. If the Old Testament and New Testament and the Psalms are too much, just read the New Testament like our youth group is doing. But what does it look like to rehearse and know the true story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not just that. It's the importance of our character that Paul seems to share in his defense. What you see him hit home here is that it can't just be the gospel that's proclaimed. It has to be more than that. And he does that. He says, what you preach, what you believe must be reflected in one's character and life. Look at what he says in verse 8. We were ready to share with you, and this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, right? That's the proclamation, the good news, but what? But also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. They shared their life, their way of life, and it was reflected in their character. And throughout this letter, you see him share what kind of character and life they exhibited. Look at verse 2, boldness. Their experience at Philippi might have destroyed their confidence, but they came to Thessalonica nonetheless because they were made bold by God to proclaim the gospel. Verse 7, gentleness. 
Paul uses this family metaphor as a mother caring or nursing for her own children. There's this gentleness, and it's so much more than that when you, you imagine a mother caring for their child. It's a picture of care, love, of sharing with one another. But not only gentleness and boldness, but diligence. Look at verse 9. They were not lazy, but they worked hard. Paul actually will address this later in chapter 4. But he actually got a side gig. He was a tent maker. Why? So that he wouldn't burden these new believers to actually become a financial strain on them. And so what does he do? He actually works to support himself in the ministry that God was calling him to. But also look at verse 10. Man, can you imagine saying this? You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. He's saying we were above reproach in every single way possible. And then lastly in verses 11, 12, he picks up the other, the other, uh, this other metaphor of being like a father, right? That like a father, they exhorted, encouraged, and charged the young believers to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now that's important because today, in today's time, a lot of times we relegate teaching and exhorting to who? To the moms. But back in the ancient world, it was the fathers that did the discipleship, the training, the raising up of kids, and instructions. And so in these ways, what you see is boldness, gentleness, diligence, blamelessness, faithfulness. And what's so amazing is these characteristics wasn't shown when things were easy. Remember, this was when they were being persecuted. They were being afflicted. And yet they were able to say this was our character. But not just Paul and Timothy and Silas's character. Guess what? This was the character of the Thessalonian church. Verse 13 and 14. Paul, he gives thanks that not only did they receive God's word, but they actually became imitators of the churches of God that are in Judea. You suffered the same things. In their suffering, they were, to, they were emulating this sort of character and way of life that shaped the Macedonian and Achaean world, which is, which is today contemporary Greece. This little cultural minority group of people who believed the gospel of God, reflected in their character, transformed the world. Teresa May, who's a leading classicist in the world, was asked this question, what is the single greatest contribution of Christianity to the ancient world? This is what she said. I think that insistence by Christianity that God is always loving and always trustworthy and always just. And because of that, Christian are, Christians are called always to practice those same goods towards God and always to practice those same goods to one another. That is a very big change in thinking from the ethics of the Greek and Roman world. In other words, the Christian insistence that if those things are good, they are good, they are good for everybody, and they are always good, I think that was transformational for the Roman world and then for the Christian world, and is perhaps the single greatest contribution of Christianity to public life. In other words, what they believed about who God was, the good news of Jesus, was reflected in how they lived their life. When you think about charity, human rights, 
love of enemy. These were not the norm in Roman and Greek society. It was something that was born out of this good news. And this is what changed the world. Even in our church, as we think about pastors or future pastors, as seminarians are sitting here this morning, for our officers or those that desire to be officers, we always emphasize the three C's, right? Competency, calling, and character. But every time I begin officer training each year, we read through 1 Timothy 3. And I ask them, what do you see as the qualifications of an elder or deacon? And everything in what Paul describes in qualifications, everything except for one is about one's character. It's about one's character. And so as we think about leadership at ResCom, but also as followers of Jesus, everyone in this room who considers themselves Christians, what does it look like to reflect the gospel in our life, in our way of life? Can you imagine this? For a young nine-year-old who's learning the cello, can you imagine them playing the cello suites by Johann Sebastian Bach? <laughs> you would think it was horrible. You'd be like, what kind of tune is that? Who composed that? But we're able to discern between what is beautifully composed versus what would be an ordinary or an awful performance. And in some ways, that's the gospel. John Dixon says this, Jesus wrote a beautiful tune. And Christians have sometimes sung it very poorly and thus obscured the gospel. And sometimes Christians have sung it beautifully with lasting effect and people can see the gospel in us. See, the gospel is a beautiful tune. And we're called to be able to reflect the gospel in our lives, albeit ordinary, sometimes awful, but also beautifully. I began sharing the story about Ravi Zacharias' death and his moral failures. And those are the things that always make the headlines and the news outlets. But what doesn't get announced or put in headlines are those that have lived faithfully. We need fathers and mothers in our lives, spiritual fathers and mothers, who reflect this kind of life that we just read. And one man that did that for me was Dr. David Calhoun, who passed away two Fridays ago. I know that some of us here have sat under his teaching. He was my interim pastor for a year during seminary. And because I was the college director of WashU, I got to spend every single week with him for that year. And I don't remember much of, I wrote journal after journal knowing that this was going to be kind of the last hurrah of his ministry. I can't even find that journal. I was like looking for it all week. I only remember one sermon that he preached during that year, which was on the washing the feet of the disciples. But you know what has always stood out to me about him was his character. These things that we looked at, boldness, gentleness, blamelessness. His diligence and hard work. I mean, this father of mine battled for decades cancer. He was on chemotherapy. He would joke about his colonoscopies with me all the time. But this, this amazing man, I remember more of his character than anything else. And I strive to do that. 
just to share a story with you from another one of our former elders who's now in South Carolina. He shared this about Dr. Calhoun. Dr. Calhoun was my hero. I remember the day I was diagnosed with cancer and Dr. Calhoun heard about it. As I got up at the end of his class to leave, he called out to me, Mr. Going, a word in my office, please. And he had this very low baritone voice. In his office that day, I'll never forget what he said and how it made me feel. I walked in there afraid and alone and came out comforted and encouraged. Two things stood out from that conversation. First, Mr. Going, this is the worst time of your life. He went on to explain and warn, warn me that I'll lose a lot of friends as they don't know how to respond or they'll say really crappy stuff out of their discomfort. He was right. I lost several friends during that time. But second, that this will be the best time of my life. I was definitely puzzled when he said this. He explained that God will draw near and that I will feel his presence ever so deeply. He said this with such deep conviction that I believed him and he was right. I felt God's presence during that cancer journey. Additionally, he said, I will find out who my true friends are and will gain new people in my life. And he was spot on. Then he gave me a list of books to read and told me of some great treatments for my cancer. And then he prayed for me. Oh, man, it was a powerful moment. I know I'm not doing justice to this account in his office, but I can tell you this. I walked out of his office deeply encouraged and ready to battle cancer. Everyone needs a Dr. Calhoun in their corner, and I was thankful to have him in my life. That was over 20 years ago, and he and I kept up our correspondence over the years. His encouraging emails were a source of deep comfort to me. Rest in peace, Dr. Calhoun. Your race is finished, and you fought val valiantly. There are people that don't make it to the, to the headline news like Dr. Calhoun. But there are faithful men and women we need to look to, not because they are the Christ, but because God uses them to encourage us to love God, to love neighbor, to embrace and receive the gospel, and to allow that to change our way of life, and to become effective followers of Jesus, to change our families, our communities, and the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for people like Paul and Timothy and Silas, but also other fathers and mothers who have paved the way for us to give us confidence in following you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that that would be a reality here at Restoration, to be a place where we'd be marked by the gospel of Jesus, but more so by our character and way of life, so that others who see us, live with us, work with us, would be so encouraged to give glory to you. Lord, do that work slowly but surely, we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.